Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the racks beneath the chairs in front of you, and if you'd like to keep that, that that's fine. That would be a, our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one with you. The words to the passages that I read, at least most of them, will also be on the screen behind me, so you'll have a chance to see them there. But we're in Romans chapter 3. We're going to move today to verse 9. We're only going to look at three verses today, verses 9, 10, and 11. So let's, let's read those first, and then we'll pray again together. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. I wanted to remind you of this. I, I told you this after it happened. Right after I began my time here as your pastor, I went to a conference down in Austin, and one of the sessions was actually on preaching, and I thought I should probably go to that. Um, so I went, and it was the, the pastor of the church that was hosting the conference was leading this breakout session. I respect him greatly. I like his sermons, and I've read some of his books. And he stood up there in front of me and said, if you're a new pastor, your first 200 sermons are going to be really bad. <laughs> you remember that? If you were here three years ago, you remember me telling you that. Well, there's good news in that. There's only about 50 left, and then they should get much better. And, um, you know, as I thought about that, I'd do the same thing you do. I kind of chuckle at that, but it's mainly true. And then there are weeks that are incredibly busy, and the weight of Scripture seems to weigh especially hard, and you feel especially inadequate. And... You, I came to church this morning, I'm tired, I don't have much energy, and so that affects your zeal and your enthusiasm, and so we need to pray again before I preach. This week, I, every day I go through one of the prayers in this book, it's called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of prayers from the Puritans. And I've told you before, unlike some, I don't have any problem with prayers that are written down. We have prayers in the Bible that are written down. And people pray them a lot. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it, as long as you mean what you're saying. The words don't have to be original to you. In fact, one of the complaints of many people when they lament that they don't pray more is they don't know what to say. And so these are excellent tools to kind of spur your imagination and remind you of things you can pray for. So I'm going to read a prayer today from the book uh, the Valley of Vision. You may remember, some of you, we went through this many years ago, so most of you probably weren't even here, never mind. Um, there's a book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, written by Mark Dever, and the first mark is expositional preaching. And so that's what we strive to do here. We also give a little booklet to everyone that goes through our membership class, and it's called What is a Healthy Church Member? And the first attribute of a healthy church member is to be an expositional listener. 
And so that's what this prayer really covers. And as I read it, I thought, that is really a prayer for me as I pre uh, preach this morning, but it's also a prayer for you as you listen. So if you would, let's pray together. And you, I would ask that you hear these words, and then you can agree with them in your heart as a prayer to God. Let's pray together. God, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Yet I long that people might be edified with divine truth, that an honest testimony might be born for thee. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expressions, fluency, fervency, a feeling sense of the things I preach, and grace to apply them to men's consciences. Keep, my, uh, keep me conscious all the while of my defects, and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Help me to offer a testimony for thyself, and to leave sinners inexcusable in neglecting thy mercy. Give me freedom to open the sorrows of thy people, and to set before them comforting considerations. Attend with power the truth preached, and awaken the attention of my slothful audience. May thy people be refreshed, melted, convicted, comforted, and help me to use the strongest arguments drawn from Christ's incarnation and sufferings that men might be made holy. I myself need thy support, comfort, strength, holiness, that I might be a pure channel of thy grace and be able to do something for thee. Give me then refreshment among thy people, and help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a Redeemer, or be harsh in treating of Christ's death, its design and end, from lack of warmth and fervency, and keep me in tune with thee as I do this work. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We pray it in the name of your Son. Amen. If you've been in the past few services that we've gone through Romans, you're discovering that it's becoming quite challenging. And after reading the first three chapters, it's very unlikely that any of us would call Paul a close personal friend. He's pretty harsh, isn't he? Uh, when he's, he's talking about us, people. So today we're going to be looking at the state of man and it's an assessment of mankind that many of us don't like to hear. We find it objectionable. We like to believe that we are basically good. And this view is reinforced to us by many in our culture today. Psychologists, counselors, and even religious leaders will reinforce the idea that you're good. But if we're honest, we really don't even have to go to the Bible. If you're honest with yourself you know that deep down there is a problem. And the problem is with the way we are. Something is wrong. No matter whom or what we try to blame for this feeling, we can't escape it. Man feels guilt. Not only about the things he's done but that he knows are wrong, but about who he is. The kind of person he is on the inside. 
It's interesting, back in 1978, there were, um, in the newspaper, which used to actually be on paper, there were uh, advice columnists, and one of the most famous was a lady named Ann Landers. And in 1978, she wrote this, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day, or your week, or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny, and when you do something dishonest, hurtful, or tacky, or selfish, or rotten, there it is. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Then she says this, remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. Okay, so what do you recommend, Anne, to get rid of the guilt? She never goes on to answer that question. It seems like no matter how hard we try, how hard mankind tries, he inevitably sees that he cannot keep from thinking and saying and doing things that are wrong and that lead to him feeling guilty about it. And guilt can have very dangerous consequences. It can lead you to things like alcohol or drugs or despair and anxiety and rap music and all kinds of terrible things. And even... Ultimately, all too often, it can lead to suicide. So what do we do with this feeling of guilt? Well, if Paul was standing here, he would say, people, it's not that complicated. You feel guilty because you are guilty. The guilt feeling is a symptom, not the problem. The problem is sin. Paul, I believe, is convinced that we're not ready to hear the gospel until we first understand the indictment of God against mankind. And that's what he's been sharing. And it's difficult to hear, especially if you divorce it from the rest of the book, the rest of the presentation of the gospel. So here in Romans 3, starting in verse 9 and 10 and on, all the way through 20, really, is a view of humanity that's on a collision course with what you'll hear everywhere else. It tells us about our natural condition, and I want to just say we cannot get caught up in what fallen people think of ourselves. What matters is God's assessment of our condition, and that's what Paul is giving us this morning. So beginning in verse 9, we see a summary of the condition of every human being apart from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's not a pretty picture. According to Paul, Jews are no better than Gentiles. Gentiles are no better than Jews. Instead, all are alike under sin. And all are thus subject to the wrath and then the final judgment of Almighty God. So when Paul says under sin, he means that sin is not something that just scratches us on the surface. It's not tangential to our lives. The weight of sin is so heavy that it presses down upon us. We are under a weighty burden of guilt as a result of our sin. 
The force of what Paul is saying in verse 9 is that because of our sin, each of us is under the verdict of the law. And it will lead to the judgment of God. Now the late Dr. R.C. Sproul used to describe this being under sin in this way. He said, with respect to the performance of our obedience before God, we're not quote-unquote on top of things like we like to say. Rather, we are under an awesome weight of sin. And he says that the law that hangs over our heads is like the sword of Damocles. Are you familiar with that story? I think it was originally attributed to Cicero at one time. The story is that a man named Damocles was really pandering to his king, who was named uh, Dionysius, saying, oh, you're the greatest, you have no peers, you have majesty and wisdom and greatness and power. And so Dionysius said, why don't we change places for a day so you'll know what it's like to have this power and luxury and all. And so they did that. Damocles ascended to his throne and was impressed by the luxury that accompanied it, whether it be fancy rugs and sweet perfumes and servants to do everything he wanted. You see, Dionysius had made many enemies during his reign, and so he had installed above the throne a sword hanging by a single hair from a horse's tail tied to the pommel of the sword, and it was to remind him of the constant threat while he enjoyed this great luxury and awesome power, he had this threat hanging over his head all the time to be alert to the dangers and enemies that might be around. And Sproul says that that is what the weight of sin is like. It's hanging over our head. We cannot escape it. We are under sin. We are completely subservient and in bondage to the dominion of sin. So to prove that Paul's assessment is not of his own design, he begins to quote from the Old Testament. Now, he doesn't quote one particular passage. Rather, he gives us a bit of an amalgamation of several verses. Most of them are out of Psalms. I want to read just a couple of those to you. First, Psalm 14. You may have heard parts of this before, but as we read it, listen for what we just read in verses 10 and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. So here we have, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt, and there is none who does good, not even one. We also have Psalm 53, which is essentially the, the same words with just a few Cosmetic differences, if you will, in the Hebrew language. So let's read that. It's almost the same. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you can see the truth of all of these passages sort of being rolled up into one, and that's what Paul is quoting there in verses 10 and 11. He summarizes it by saying, None is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. And this is a serious charge. It's really a devastating picture of the human race because it portrays human beings as unable to do even a single thing, either to please God or to understand God or to seek after God. It's an expression of what theologians rightly call man's total depravity. Some call it total inability, which has a similar but slightly different nuance to it. But total depravity, we've talked about that in here before. And whenever you mention that, most people rebel against that idea and say, well, I'm not totally depraved. There are lots of people worse than me. And we look at it that way, and we start thinking of people in our mind that are that bad. They're bad all the time in every way. And you can think of historical figures. The first name that comes to everyone's mind is someone like Adolf Hitler. You can throw in... Stalin or Paul Pot in Cambodia, these great evil men, or throw in people like Tom Cruise, totally depraved. The man who first came up with the idea of fat-free food, where you take real food that tastes good and you make a version of it that does not, and then you get the whole medical community to encourage you to eat that food. That's depraved. And we think we're not that bad. We're not like that. So it doesn't apply to me. But the idea is that we are totally depraved in the sense that it affects every area of our being. From our thinking, to our speaking, to our feelings, our will. Everything is touched by our sin nature. We are totally depraved. And Paul's going to give us some ways in today's passage that, that illustrate that how we are so depraved, and it's hard for us to accept this because we, as people, tend to take sin so lightly. Most people are willing to admit that they're not perfect. I mean, it takes a really arrogant person to refuse to admit that they're not perfect. But that's way different than admitting that we're utterly depraved in the sense of having absolutely no ability to please God or to understand him, or to seek him. I mean, we're willing to admit that we're not perfect, but we're not willing to admit that we're not righteous. We're willing to admit that there are things that we don't know, but we're not willing to admit that we're completely devoid of spiritual understanding. We're willing to admit that we wander off the path from time to time, but we're not willing to admit that we're on the wrong path altogether. So often we pretend that we're seeking God when actually we're running from Him. So it's vitally important that we come to terms with this truth about ourselves, our tendency to run from God rather than to seek Him. Without an accurate knowledge of our sin, how can we ever understand God's grace? It's almost like in our physical life, as long as we feel that we're well, or mostly well, we won't go to a doctor. I will tell you the times I've been most ill, my wife has had to drag me to the emergency room, or 
carry me because I would wait and wait and say, I'm, I think I'm getting better. And I would get weaker and sicker. And it was bad. I needed to realize how sick I was so that I would consent to go see a doctor. And we're like that in our spiritual life as well. If we know we are spiritually sick, we can turn to the great physician, perhaps. But I think we may need to back up a little. Because I just compared our need for Christ to that of a doctor. I even referred to him as the great physician, which of course he is. But I must say, however, that according to these passages in Romans and in other places, the situation is much worse than that. I mean, as long as someone is sick, the situation is not hopeless. They might get better. But according to these verses, and many others in the New Testament especially, apart from the grace of God, a person is not just spiritually sick, but they are dead. When we consider the uniqueness of the Bible's teaching about the state of man, we're reminded that over the course of history, there's only been three basic views on the state of mankind. Views of human nature. They are that man is well, some say that man is sick, and others say that man is dead. And they all will disagree on the degree of all that. Those who think he's well think, well, he's well, but he could sure use some exercise or change his diet a little. And then others who think he's sick will say, well, he's not terribly sick and certainly not fatally sick. So there's disagreement about the degrees. But the first view there is that man is essentially well. It's the view of liberalism. It is the view of most people in the world. Man is well. He's okay. And again, if they admit that something is wrong, it's generally that he's just not fully as healthy as he could be, but he's still well. So this view holds that morally and spiritually speaking, all people need is a little exercise, maybe some vitamins, maybe a checkup once a year, and you'll be fine. Some would even say that the human race is getting better and better, and these are your optimists. I'm not one of those. No one has ever accused me of being an optimist. The second view is that man is sick. This is the view of the pessimist. Or anyone who's reflected seriously on the state of mankind and on history. Because these people look at the general optimism of, say, the last hundred years, and, and they say, this isn't working. You look back at your history books and things like the Industrial Revolution and all of the technological advances, medical advances that we've made, people believing that man is evolving into more and more special person, better, better equipped for everything. They say that that promise was that all problems would eventually be solved. Wars would cease and starvation would be eliminated and diseases would be conquered People would learn to live together in a spirit of cooperation, unity, brotherhood. So there are many who look at that, look at the situation today and look at those promises and say, if we're only slightly flawed, if we're only sick, how come the world has not been perfected by now? Why are there still wars and why is starvation and disease still things 
Why can't people get along with one another? So the pessimist looks at this and concludes, in my view, very wisely, that something is wrong. They may not know what is wrong, but they know something is wrong. In fact, it's terrible. So they believe that man is very sick indeed, but certainly not dead. The pessimist believes that the man can be sick, very sick, morally ill, but as long as there's life, there's hope. I mean, sure, nations may be able to blow themselves off the globe today and destroy the planet, but the situation is still not hopeless. We just have to work hard and tackle all of these problems and defeat them. There's really no need to call a mortician yet. The third view is the one the Bible presents. It is that we are not well, we're not even sick. But when it comes to our ability to do anything to please or to understand or to find God, we are dead. And that is exactly what God declared to Adam and Eve when he warned them in Genesis chapter 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve died physically, but they also died spiritually And they pass down that curse of spiritual death to all of us. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Of ourselves, we are unable to respond to God, just like any corpse would be unable to respond to being told to do anything. We're dead. So let's take a look at some of these aspects of total depravity from today's text. These are really issues of our character, if you want to get right down to it. And Paul notes them in sort of a chronological order. The second one follows the first one, and the third one follows the second one. So let's take a look at these. We'll start in verse 10. The first one here deals with our morality. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. So this does not mean that you're just a little bit less righteous than you need to be. You're really, really good, but you just are a little short. That's not at all what it means. And if you've read the first part of Romans, chapters 1 and 2, you surely can't believe that that's true, as Paul has gone to great pains to describe the condition of mankind. Actually, when Paul says none is righteous, that he means that from God's perspective, human beings have no righteousness at all. Now, I did say from God's point of view, and I don't mean that to imply that there are other points of view that matter more. The reason I said that is I don't want you to consider these questions from man's point of view. Because from man's perspective, there are, we always think there are some people who are good because we can see that they're better than others. And we confuse that kind of righteousness with God's righteousness. And we assume that by simply accumulating some of this human goodness, we can please God. One commentator put it this way, human righteousness is like monopoly money. He said it has, it has its uses in the game we call life, but it's not real currency and it doesn't work in God's domain. 
God requires divine righteousness. Just like the United States only accepts the U.S. dollar's legal tender. Now later in Romans, we find that Paul writes about this when he's talking about Israel. In chapter 10, verse 3, he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Israel wanted God to accept their currency, their own righteousness that you receive when you come to Christ rather than that genuine currency. So the first thing Paul says about the human race is that it has no righteousness. And to add to that notion, he says no, not one. So there's no exceptions if that's what you were thinking. Actually, in verse 12, which is not in today's text, but it's the next verse we'll get to next time, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So he again builds on this. In case you're not sure what he's saying, he repeats it yet again. None is righteous. No, not one. So let's move on. What's next? Well, let's talk about our thinking. The sinful mind. In verse 11, he says, no one understands. So the second pronouncement God makes about human beings is that in their sinful condition, they do not understand spiritual things. I mean, that's not surprising to you, is it? If, as fallen creatures, we don't want to have God in our thinking, we dismiss Him and we develop a worldview that excludes Him. How can we not end up with a complete inability to grasp the things of God? The Greek word there for understands carries the connotation of grasping something that changes or excuse me, that challenges one's thinking and challenges one's practice. I think that's an interesting way of looking at Scripture. If we're going to understand it, isn't that the way Scripture works to challenge our thinking and to challenge our practice? God and His righteousness are a challenge to human thought and behavior. And in our fallen state, it seems to go right over our heads. Now, Again, I want you to look at this not as merely a lack of knowledge, but this inability uh, to understand is more of a lack of spiritual perception. I mean, on a, on a human level, we talk about understanding. We, we observe rightly that there are some people who are much brighter and understand many more things and since we are impressed by that, we could be misled by it when it comes to understanding God. So in spiritual matters, the important thing is that no one truly understands God or seeks to know Him. Again, I don't mean just a rational understanding of Christian things. For example, a scholar can understand and even teach, if he's a professor, theological principles right along with any other theory of human thought, any other philosophy. An unbelieving philosopher can lecture accurately on the Christian idea of God. An unbelieving historian can teach you everything you ever wanted to know about the Reformation, including the spiritual truths that identified it. 
But these people do not believe what they are describing or teaching. It's like we just mentioned. It's an understanding that does not challenge their thinking or their practice. Paul speaks of this later in 1 Corinthians where he refers to people who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand. That's why some people refer to this as total inability. They are, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. One other thought about this not understanding God is it's not due to intellectual ignorance. I don't mean to imply that only the smart people can understand God. In fact, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians why we are not able to understand. He says this in chapter 4, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, we've discussed this previously. Back in Romans chapter 1, the cause of people's ignorance about God. Remember, it says that they could see the truth of God revealed in nature, but they did not honor Him as God and did not glorify Him. And the reason that we don't pursue the God that we can actually see is because we don't want to move in the direction that that truth would lead us. We don't want to have anything to do with God. And as a result, our thinking becomes futile in chapter 1, verse 21, and our foolish hearts are darkened. Okay, take a deep breath. We've done two. There's one more. We've talked about our morality and the fact that we don't have any righteousness. We've talked about our understanding that no one understands God. The final thing we want to talk about is our will. No one seeks after God our volitional ability to find God. In verse 11, at the very end, it just says, no one seeks for God. So we have our moral and our intellectual failures, and now we have a corrupt human will. We're rebellious. No one in his natural condition seeks after God. This can be controversial, actually more to people my age, because there was a period in church growth theory where everything was centered around seekers. People who would just randomly walk into your building because they are seeking God. Paul says no one seeks after God. You see, seeking after God is the business of a believer. The moment we become a Christian is the moment when our quest for God begins. Here again, don't, you can't just think in human terms. If you do that, you'll conclude that Paul is wrong and that history proves that we've been seeking God all along. Thomas Aquinas was once asked, why there seem to be non-Christians who are searching for God when the Bible says that no one does that? His response was that people all around us are feverishly seeking for purpose in their lives. They're pursuing happiness. They're looking for a release from their guilt. 
to really to silence the pangs of their conscience? You see, we see people searching for things that we know can only be found in Christ. But we make the gratuitous assumption that because they are seeking these things, they must therefore be seeking God. And that is the dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can provide, but we do not want Him. We want peace, but we don't want the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but we don't want the sovereign purposes directed and declared by God. We want meaning found in ourselves, not found in God's rule. So we see desperate people and we assume that they're seeking for God, but they're not seeking for God. And I know that because God says so. No one seeks after God. I mean, how desperately do you think Paul was seeking after God on the road to Damascus where he met Jesus? He was going to persecute believers, put them in jail. That's where he met Christ. I wouldn't consider Paul to be a seeker. In fact, all of the familiar passages in Scripture that we use to justify this idea of seeking, passages like, knock and it will be open to you, Luke eleven nine, 9, seek the Lord while he may be found, Isaiah 55, 6, seek and you will find, Matthew 7, 7, behold, I stand at the door and knock, Revelation three twenty. all of those verses are written to the church, to believers, Jesus seeks believers, so it is believers who are called to seek the Lord. While we are living in unbelief, we do not seek God. In fact, if you are seeking God, it's a clear indication that you're already in the kingdom of God. And if you don't seek after God, it's a very clear indication that you are not. Now you may think, judging from the vast number of religions in the world and the millions of people who are zealously devoted to them. Surely they're seeking after God. The Scripture makes it clear that all religious systems are really an attempt to escape the true God as we make gods of our own making, of our own preferences. There's none who seeks after God. And Okay, let me just... Put this out there. If you don't believe the Bible and you need other proof, it's been studied. Sociologists and anthropologists have studied both the history of man and current situation. And they have discovered that the human race, contrary to what you might think, has been consistently running away from ideas of one high and holy God. A man named Robert Brow wrote a book called Religion, Origins and Ideas. And in that, he discovered that the most primitive of people have an idea of one God, monotheistic, one God. They don't worship him because this God rules over all the animistic and pantheistic gods that they actually do fear. So they don't worship him, but they acknowledge that he exists. At the root of all pagan religions and mythologies, Frederic Godet, who we introduced to you last week, said there lies an original monotheism, which is the historical starting point in religion for all mankind. So man is not moving closer to the one true God throughout history, but further away. No one 
seeks after God. That's pretty bad news. Let's turn the page. Because this takes us back to the very principles we discussed at the very beginning of this story. This story of the condition of mankind as seen by God. According to the Bible, no one, unaided by the Holy Spirit, has any righteousness at all. Has any true understanding of God. Or seeks God. That sounds like a death sentence to me. Where do we go from here? The good news is that what we do not have and cannot do, God has done. God has done this for those who are being saved. Here's what I mean. As we go into this, I'm going to ask our praise team to return to the stage. Very quickly, let's look at what God has done for us. First, he has sought us. We ran from God, but God pursued us relentlessly. And some of you can think back to the time in your own life as you ran from God. If God had not pursued us, we would never have been saved. No one is ever saved who has not first been pursued by God and been found by Him. So where we never seek for God, God sought for us. Second, where no one understands, God has given us understanding. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we're all dead in Christ before the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 later says that we are made alive in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, our eyes are opened so that we can see things in the spiritual realm now. We can understand them. So God has given us understanding. It doesn't mean that we have perfect understanding, that we know everything. But rather, we are now able to respond to the spiritual truths that are presented to us. So where we did not understand, God has given us understanding. And then finally, where none is righteous, no, not one. God has given us righteousness, and not just any righteousness, but His righteousness, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the very grounds for our salvation. Everything that we could not do, God provides. That's the beauty of the gospel. But to appreciate that, to appreciate the beauty of the gospel, we have to understand the ugliness of our fallen state, and that's what Paul is presenting to us this morning. In these passages, you can see, and in others, that God cares enough to confront people with the gospel. For some, this may seem like a self-righteous rant by Paul. How dare you? Who do you think you are? But for those who have been called to repentance to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, we understand that Paul is simply a confirming mouthpiece, and he's conveying a message that wounds so that it may heal. God is speaking savingly in these passages. I mean, the righteousness of God that we've been given has no rivals. There's nothing we can do to match that. The gospel call is radical in that it denounces human pretension. Self-sufficiency, we cast 
our entire lives on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful revelation of what's available for us. It's the antidote. The gospel is the antidote to the, cons- the uh, situation we just described. It is the superior option. It is the best option for us. And this morning, you have a choice. You can remain in the case that we described, in the situation where you have no righteousness, no understanding, and not even trying to seek after God. Or this morning, you can decide, this is going to be the day that I put my entire future, my life, both here on this earth and for eternity, in the hands of a loving Savior. I'd love to tell you how to do that. If you have any questions, come see me right after the service. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the boldness of the man like Paul who can risk unpopularity, anger from his hearers and readers in order to share the truth of where we stand. And I'm grateful that despite how terrible the situation is, you've provided a way Everything that we cannot do and that we do not have, you have provided in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Apply it to the hearts of people this morning who need to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming this morning. Thank you for your kind attention. I want to invite you back Wednesday night. We have events for all ages, from children to our student ministry to adults. I want to close with another prayer written in a book. This one, prayed by the very same person who just told us how really terrible we are. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Ephesians, which gives us great hope. And that this man understood what we were like, but also understands now in Christ what we're capable of. This is from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, praying that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next time.